I have been working at our house for the last couple of weeks, re, repurposing. That's a new trendy word now, right? You don't, you don't re... Anyway, people repurpose everything now. And um, we've been repurposing an old building at, our, at the farm. Um, it's an old double corn crib that stood at our place. It was built in the early 70s. And um, we were turning that old corn crib into a workshop. The old pressure-treated poles that were buried in the ground, had rotted off, and so we poured some concrete and set those on concrete, and we're attaching steel siding and putting up garage doors and sealing and insulating and giving ourselves a warm place where we can work on vehicles and equipment, and we look forward to that. Well, one of the things that we need are some windows. Well, I didn't, you know me, I'm a cheapskate, um, and while, yes, it's nice to have a nice building, I didn't want to go out and buy brand new windows for a building that's not going to be heated. And so I found a guy who had some very slightly used windows at a great price. And I'm all about cheap, okay? So I, I was trying to text this guy and communicate with him, and I was getting responses that really made no sense at all. Um, it was English, but it just were not sentences. And I finally just said, let me just come and see you. And so I drove up to Montana and, and met a man and discovered why we were having such trouble. He is from the Dominican Republic. I mean, he's only been here a short time, and he doesn't speak English. So everything that he was communicating to me, he's feeding through Google Translate and then just sending that off. And, and, and it was, let's just say it was a, it was a struggle. I, I, I found that um, <laughs> while I only wanted four windows, he had seven and he would only sell seven. And so, although the price was great, I didn't come prepared to buy seven windows. I came prepared to buy four. He wouldn't sell me four. And so, through our broken, flawed communication back and forth, I said, I will come back tomorrow, and I'll, I'll, I'll take these, I'll take all of them, but I'll bring some extra cash. And I was surprised when he says, okay, and began carrying the windows out and throwing them in the back of my truck. I said, I owe you a few hundred dollars yet. <laughs> he says, it's okay. Come back tomorrow. I was surprised that he, he trusted me in that way, um, a total stranger. I was also surprised that he then handed me his business card. And he identi- the business card that he gave me identified himself as somebody who cleans hotels. Um, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that line of work at all. He works at Wise's through the week, and on weekends when he's free, I'm, I was quite impressed with his industry and his willingness to work hard. Um, but on weekends, he said, I'll be at this place tomorrow. Here's my card. I just didn't expect somebody who cleaned hotels on his, week, on his days off to have a business card. The history of business cards is kind of an interesting thing. It's probably something you've never thought about before, and you probably don't really want to think about it now either. But I'm going to tell you anyway, because I, I found this kind of fascinating. The practice of giving people a card began in the 15th century in China. They were uh, a larger card than we think of today. They were about the size of an Uno card, a little bigger than a playing card. Um, 
And it, in China, it listed the person's name and then a list of all these commendable traits or qualities that this person possessed. Um, it, it was kind of like an advertisement. And historians say they became quite braggadocious, listing things that they probably had never truly done. They were totally made up, you know, like I am whoever, slayer of 15 dragons. And, and that's the way the, these, this thing went. Well, it, by the 17th century, the custom had moved into France. And then from France spread throughout all of Europe. It began something with something that the aristocracy did, the upper crust, and then moved to middle class. It was a way to announce a planned visit um, to somebody's home. And there was all kinds of etiquette that surrounded the use of these calling cards as they became known. It was the caller would hand his card to whoever came to the door, usually a servant or butler. Um, and that person would then take the card to the lady of the house. Now, if the lady wanted to receive this visitor, she would keep the card. And that meant that the person was allowed to visit. And she would then go out there and greet them. If she did not want to receive this visitor, she would put the card in an envelope. She would seal it. She would give it back to the butler or servant. And, and he would return that to the caller. Um, the trick then of course, was to make an impression on the lady uh, with nothing but, a, but paper and what you wrote on it. The card would include not just the name, but also some notable traits of the person. And it would also include the reason for the call, the reason for the visit. If the caller wrote the letters PF, that meant that the nature of the visit was to congratulate them on something. If the caller wrote the letters PC, that meant the the caller was there to offer condolences for something. Or if they wrote other letters, it meant they were there to perhaps entertain a date. And I don't understand the reason for the letters. It really makes no sense, probably because it was in French. But by the Victorian era, businesses began to pick up on this idea that, hey, this is useful. And so they began to print cards announcing a trade or a service that was offered. And the reverse side was usually include a map or ad... Or, um, directions to their place of business because street addresses were not in use yet at that time. And business cards, calling cards, calling cards are hardly used at all, if they are at all. Business cards still have use, maybe not once they, like they once had. We, we use LinkedIn if we want to know about a person or a business. Uh, we, we use, we're just plain old creep on somebody's Facebook page if we want to know more about them. Um, but it's, there's, there's something valuable about letting people know who you are, about letting people know what you're about. I mean, if you go to a football game and you see a bunch of fans waving a yellow towel, what do you know? You're, you're at a Steelers game, okay? If you see a person wearing a bright red hat that says, make America great again, you immediately know how they vote. Um, do Christians, though, have a calling card? Can you identify, can we identify one another? Do we know who a believer in Christ is quickly and easily? Jesus actually gave a really, very specific answer to this question in the book of John. I'd ask you to turn there, please, to John chapter 13. And in John 13, we're going to begin reading at verse 33. And he, he tells them that they indeed do have a calling card. 
They have a trademark sign, a symbol that lets everybody know who they are. John 30, I'm sorry, John 13, 33 says, Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. How? If you love one another. Three times, three times in those few short verses, Jesus gives this important instruction. What is it? Love one another. And the result of such love, it's our calling card. It's what identifies us. It says, Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples. So let's look at this passage a little bit closer. I want to point out to us, to, to you all, that it says, Jesus says, a new commandment. Jesus is giving us a new commandment. And I want to point out, first of all, this is a command. Yeah, I'll do this. On Thursday, our president spoke to the nation, and he issued several commands that I believe he had no authority to give. He commanded that every American be vaccinated. Now, guys, I, I'm, he commanded that employers become enforcers of this command. He, he said that any elected official or state governor who opposes this or thinks differently should be removed from office, and he would use his powers to do so. Friends, I'm not talking about vaccinations. That's not the point. Whether you're vaccinated or you're not, whether you think we should or should not, does not matter. My point is that man had no authority to issue those commands. We in our country have a separation of powers. I, I've already contacted my representatives and say this is the reason we have separation of powers. I would suggest perhaps you do the same. But guys, this is my point. While perhaps I believe our president did not have the authority to command as he did, Jesus does. And he says right here, he, he says, he's not offering a suggestion. He's not making a request. He, he's not giving a motivational speech. He says, this is a command that you love one another. Now, I've never served in the military. I, I've never received direct orders like that, but I believe that's what this is. I have served as a parent. Um, I've fathered and raised some children. And Trish and I ingrained this into our kids' head from the time they were very young, that when mom and dad speak, they are to be obeyed without question, without challenge, and without delay. You ask my kids, they will spit that back at you. Yes, we have to obey without question, without challenge, without delay. And, and that's what we expect. This command is no different. It is to be obeyed without question, without what? Challenge, and without delay. In fact, it's far stronger than the command that I would give my child. This is a command that comes from the Lord himself. But secondly, I want to point out that it says, Jesus says, this is a new command. It's a new command. And when I read that several weeks ago, and this has been just rolling through my mind for, for weeks now, why is this a new command? Were we never told to love before? 
Deuteronomy chapter 6. You don't need to go there. But Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 gives what's called the great Shema. The Shema is a prayer that is recited two times a day for every Jewish person and has for all of, since the day it was given. Um, it is considered to be the, the most important creed. And it says, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Chad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. In fact, the, the Hebrew word that's there is meotika, and it means with all of your muchness. I love that. We should love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, with all of our muchness. Everything that is within us. That's the way we're supposed to love God. Well, that command's not new. In Leviticus, the part that we read in our scripture reading today, Leviticus 19, it says, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You shall love your neighbor elf. I am the Lord. So certainly these aren't new commands. So what exactly is Jesus saying? I think we need to keep looking. Is it possible, perhaps, this command was not new, but it was just new to Jesus? You know, it's like this old law that's on the books, but nobody really knew about. Is that possible? No. I mean, besides the fact that Jesus is all-knowing, he's omniscient, that means he not only knows the truth, but in fact he says he is truth. That's, that's not possible. Jesus knew this. In fact, if you'd like, let's... Go to Matthew chapter 22. I have clear proof here in Matthew 22 that Jesus knew these commands. In Matthew 22, verse 34, we have an incident where an incident where the Pharisees are gathering together and they desire once again to trick Jesus. So Matthew 22, 34 says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked of him a question, testing him. So his intent is clear. His desire is to trick Jesus. And he asks this question, Teacher, which is the greatest, greatest commandment in the law? And he answered and said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. What is it? Love you should love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang or depend all the law and the prophets. So he's asked for one commandment, and how does Jesus answer? Which one of the Ten Commandments does he give? He doesn't even give one. <laughs> he doesn't. I mean, which one of the Ten Commandments is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength? That's not one of the Ten Commandments. Which one of the commandments is, is love your neighbor as yourself? That's Leviticus 19. These two aren't on the list. But look what Jesus does here. When you break down the Ten Commandments, what you'll find is that commandments one through five deal, the first five commandments deal with our love for God. Don't have idols. Put God first. Don't take his name in vain. Keep Shabbat. Keep Shabbat. Keep it holy, the Sabbath day. The second five commandments, six through ten, they deal with our love for people and how we interact with them. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't sleep with somebody who's not your husband or your wife. Be good and respectful to your parents. And so the very first thing 
that people should realize or notice about us, about us Christians, is our love. Our, God, our love for God first, our love for one another second. And as we love our neighbor as ourselves. And as we look at Jesus' new command here to love one another, guys, it's not new at all. This has been God's focus from the beginning. So as a side note, just a parenthesis here, as we look at this passage in Matthew 22, I can't help turn to this passage without asking us, asking myself, asking you, who is your closest neighbor? It's not the person across the street. It's the person in your own house. Your wife, your husband, your father, your mother, your, your siblings, your children. And so when we look at this greatest commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves, let's begin by applying it from the inside out. Let's start applying it to those within our own walls. Before we start looking over the fence and trying to apply it to how we interact with our neighbors. Because you see, every single interpersonal conflict, every one is a failure to obey these commands. Would you fight with your brother, your neighbor, your coworker, if you loved them to the same degree you loved yourself? I don't think so. So let's go back to John chapter 13. And as we look at this again, this is near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is the final message that he wants to give to his disciples. And it's not to do some great act. It's not to love him more, but it's that they love each other more. But not just more. Jesus tells us exactly how we're supposed to love one another. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Please read the next phrase together. As I have loved you. Aha. That is what makes this a new commandment. What was the old commandment? That you love one another how? As you love yourself. Now Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another, not like you love yourself, but you love one another as I love you. This is the new part. How does Jesus love me? <laughs> Sacrificially. Ceasing, unceasingly. Unendingly. Supremely. And this then becomes, I think, the new model. The new standard for our love. Charles Spurgeon, he was called the Prince of Preachers, he said this, We are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, but we are to love our fellow Christians as Christ loved us. And that's far greater than we love ourselves. And you know, that's just like Jesus. He always elevates the standard. He never lowers it. So I'd like you to do something for me. Look around this room. 
No, you keep, you're all look, still staring at me. I want you to, to look around this room. I want you to look beside you. I want you to look across the aisle. I want you to turn around and look at the people behind you. You should be willing to sacrifice everything for the good of the people that are here in this room. Your possessions, your happiness, your comfort, your time, your gas money. <laughs> that gets more and more. You should be willing to sacrifice your reputation. Jesus sacrificed his very life. And that's the way we're called to love each other. Do you do that? I don't. <laughs> Not very well. But this is the new standard. But it's not just a new standard for loving one another. Because I love this. There's also a new ability to carry it out. There's a new ability to love in this way. There's a reason this command was not issued until the end of Jesus' ministry. We'll come back here to John 13. But turn in your Bibles, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy lays out the Mosaic Law. This is the Old Commandment. This is the Old Testament. This is the Old Law. And in Deuteronomy 29, Moses lays it out. He says, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he made with them at Horeb. And Moses commanded all Israel and said to them, you've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all of his servants and all of his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. And yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. I've laid before you the law, but you can't keep it. That's what the law does. It sets before us a standard which we look at and we say, it's great. I love it. I wish everybody would treat me that way. But we can't keep ourselves. And it it, it frustrates us. It It displays the holiness of God and it displays the holiness that God demands. But we fall short. But I'm thankful, thankfully, God foresaw the failure In the very same section, the very next chapter, he makes a promise. In chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says, Moreover, the Lord your God, this is a prophecy, this is something God tells us is coming. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul in order that you may live. And the Lord your God will inflict these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecute you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all of his commandments that I gave you today. But he told us you can't do it now But there's coming a day when you will. It's called the New Covenant. It's put on display for us in the book of Jeremiah. There's a book you probably don't go to often. But the book of Jeremiah 31, it's called the New Covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a 
new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 32. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? For they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, and I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. This new covenant is given as a prophecy here in Jeremiah. It's given as a prophecy in Deuteronomy. It's partially fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. You can begin turning there if you would. When the Holy Spirit indwells believers and empowers us to live a life of obedience and a life of godliness and a life of witness. Now, it's not going to be ultimately fulfilled until the millennium when Christ sets up his kingdom here on earth, but... Before that time, as we wait for that time, before Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and before that day, when Jesus first gave the command to love each other as he loved us, they could not do it. But now, because the Holy Spirit of God lives within the believer, we now have the ability to love the way Jesus loved. We could not do it without him. So what does this kind of love actually look like? I think we do see it in the early church. In Acts chapter 2, immediately after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit indwelt those believers for the first time, we read how the church conducted itself. Acts 2.41 So then... Those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now take notice here. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling property and possessions, and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. That's non-believers as well. And the Lord was adding to their number daily, day by day, those who were being saved. Very quickly, and then we'll be done. It says, this passage says, that they continually devoted themselves together. They. They all did it. Together. It says continually, they did this frequently, regularly. They devoted themselves, that single-minded focus. And what did they continually devote themselves to? First of all, it says to the apostles' teaching or to doctrine. They paid attention to God's word together. 
Do you talk about the scriptures together with one another? You in this room? Not just the meaning, not just what does this mean, but do you talk about how these scriptures apply to our lives? I am thankful, so thankful for a friend that calls me several days a week to talk not just about scripture, but about how scripture intersects with our struggles and our lives. And not just that they heard doctrine, but they devoted themselves to doctrine. They taught doctrine. In order for someone to hear it, somebody has to speak it. Friends, we talked about this in our announcement time, and we have a, we have a problem here. This Wednesday, we're expecting children. Lots of them. We, we, <laughs> to come here, to this place, and be fed the word of God. But there is a likelihood that we will not be able to because we don't have people who will speak it. Do you understand? Children are coming here. We don't have to go to them. They're coming to us. They're coming into this place to hear God's word. Yes, they play games. Yes, they have fun. But the reason they come is to be taught this book. And we might not be able to do it. Because we have nobody to teach them. I, I know sometimes work does not allow us to do it. I know that sometimes health does not allow us to do it. I, I know there are valid reasons. But there's a lot of invalid reasons too. He says they devoted themselves to doctrine. Also, they continually, together, devoted themselves to fellowship. That's sharing struggles, sharing victories. Not just a meal, although I invite you to a meal. I I love having a meal together. It it does occur over food. But fellowship is more than that. Fellowship is physically helping one another at school, with work, in, in practical ways, when the car breaks down or the mower breaks down or when a babysitter is needed, when someone's feeling discouraged, when somebody's sick, when somebody's struggling with finances, fellowship and love for one another as Christ loves us means that we come alongside and we help. It says that they were continually devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. That's communion. That's corporate worship. COVID and social distancing forced churches to learn how to adapt. Everybody. We learned how to work remotely. We learned how to visit remotely through a screen. We learned how to do church remotely through a screen. And while there are benefits to that, there are also disadvantages. Can I worship alone from home? Sure. To a limited degree. But corporate worship, what you're experiencing right here, is different. It's unique. We heard that repeatedly, not just from this church, but from the church universally heard repeatedly. Worshiping at home, watching a screen, is not 
doesn't cut it. It lasts for a little while, but not for long. Guys, your, your physical presence here in this place encourages one another tremendously. When you're absent, it's noticed and it's felt. It says that they devoted themselves continually together also to prayer. Pastor Marvin is going to be here next week. If you spend any time with Pastor Marvin at all, you will notice this very quickly. He prays a lot. He calls me probably every single week, almost every week I'll hear. And if you, spend, if you meet him next week, you'll notice that he concludes almost every conversation with everybody with a prayer. I've got to be honest and tell you, when I first got to know him decades ago, I thought that was kind of weird. <laughs> I've grown to love it. I have tried to incorporate that into my own interaction with people. I'll also say this. This past Wednesday at our church prayer meeting, two people came here to pray. Two. Friends, we cannot expect this church to be effective or even survive with two people praying for it. Yes, you can pray at home. But praying together is unique and it is special and it is powerful. Tertullian was a Christian from the very early church, not many generations after this passage in Acts chapter 2. He lived in northern Africa. He was born in the year 160. He died, we guess, around the year 220. He lived in northern Africa. He was a part of the Roman Empire. He was a deep thinker. He was a theologian. He was a former pagan who came to know Christ but lived in a very pagan culture. And he remarked in his writings that the Christians in the world in which he lived stood out glaringly from everybody else. He said, the pagan world is just trying to devour one another and get one up on each other. They're always fighting. They're trying to get ahead of one another. But he said, the Christians, and this is what he wrote, my, see how these Christians love one another. That should be, that love should be abnormal. It should be distinct. It should be noticed by the world. It should also be common. It should be our calling card. What people notice when they see us. So let that be our distinctive. Let that be our calling card. The characteristic that lets people know that we're a follower of Christ. When we love one another, not just as we love ourselves. That's not good enough anymore. But we love each other how? As Christ loves us. And the song says, they will know we are Christians by our love.